We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run, always chasing, never stopping. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Chasing Excellence. Patrick here with a solo introduction to this week's show. We are sharing a conversation that Ben had recently with a gentleman named Michael Cashew. You may know his name. He also goes by Michael Kaz. Uh, the podcast is called The Michael Kaz Show. Uh, Michael is a CrossFit OG. He uh, co-founded Brute Strength. He's the president of Working Against Gravity alongside his wife, and he just started something which I didn't know about. It seems really interesting called Soul Searching Adventures, where he takes men on epic outdoor trips that are part survivor, part vision quest. If that sounds interesting to you, you can check out uh, soulsearchingadventures.com. This conversation uh, between Michael and Ben is a good one. They talk about leadership. They talk a lot about Ben's most recent book, Unlocking Potential. So without further ado, Let's get into the conversation between Ben and Michael Kaz. Congratulations on the new book. I had a blast reading through it recently. And I thought we'd start out um, with the way that you start the book, which is sort of talking about how you're not a natural born leader um, to kind of use your words and you've had to work really intentionally on it. And I was reminded of a quote by one of my mentors, Philip McKernan, that goes, our greatest strength lies next to our deepest wound. And I'm not insinuating that you not being a great leader was a deep wound, but there's a, a similar flavor to now from the outside looking in, I perceive you to be one of the most excellent leaders um, I've ever I've ever witnessed. So I, yeah, I hoped we would talk about your beginnings as a leader? What did it feel like looking back on it? What were you, what were you struggling with? And I'd love to just talk about your, your journey as a leader a little bit. Yeah. So I'm happy to talk about it. I think that excellence is modal specific. And what I mean by that, the reason I might be perceived as a leader is because I've uh, laid my roots as a coach in the space. And I have a lot, I, from day one, I had a lot more confidence in my coaching than I did as my entrepreneurial leadership. As a boss, I sucked. It was a really hard struggle for me to figure out how to do that. I have a really deep embedded need to be liked by people. It's just one of those things that I grew up with. I think it's one of those things that caused me to be incredibly introverted as a kid because I was afraid if I spoke, people wouldn't like what I said and that they wouldn't like me. So I just didn't speak a lot. Mm-hmm. And then when I became a entrepreneur and opened up a gym, you know, my employees were my best friends. They were people that we hung out all the time afterwards. And in my mind, the story I was telling myself was, if I tell them what to do, they're going to think I'm bossy and not like me. So the hardest thing I had to overcome was this fear of delegating responsibility to others. And it's one of those things that it's not that necessarily I thought, well, you know, they always say that the the fear is if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And it wasn't that at all for me. It was truly, I don't want to tell them what to do because I don't want to come across as, as a jerk. Mm-hmm. I can remember the moment that this happened for me. I was sitting in my office and I had, I only had two full-time employees at the time, but already it was a massive struggle. 
And as any entrepreneur early in the day can you know kind of relate to, I'm pulling my hair out doing every single job in the business. And I have these two employees being paid full-time salaries that are just coaching like two classes a day. And they're getting paid like 40-hour work weeks. And I had no idea how to bridge that gap between friend and leader. So it took me upwards of a decade to figure that out. And it wasn't by, you know, there's no one, you know, snap moment that all of a sudden I was like, okay, now I know how to do it. It was just a little bit of the drip, 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 try it a little bit, you know, read a lot, try to figure out what other people are doing, how to structure the business. Honestly, that was probably the biggest thing that helped was just creating some actual structure and not just flying by the seat of my pants. Like I think everybody that gets into, I think of like two pursuits when it comes to entrepreneurs. And that is people that go into, they see an opportunity. They're like, Hey, I want to open up a franchise to make a lot of money. Where is the right opportunity? Okay. I'll open up a garbage removal company or open up a five guys or open up a, a Kinko's or, and they have no real interest in it other than the the monetary rewards. The and then there's the other ones that find it the way we found it, which is, man, I just love this so much. I wonder if I can turn it into a business. And that's certainly the way I found it from being a, a personal trainer to opening up a little tiny business to opening up a, a, a gym and now where we are today. But it was a wound because it totally held me back from moving forward. Mm-hmm. When you are a one person shop, you don't need to have anything in place because it is truly up to you. It is your vision. You don't need to clarify or communicate that vision. It is your standards. You don't have to clarify, communicate, or uphold those standards. It is your work ethic. You don't need to pull work. So the second you bring on that second person, it is it doesn't make it easier. It makes it harder. And that's the entrepreneurial regret that a lot of people find themselves in three, four, five years down the road of when they expand their operations past themselves. If you're just a guy that you know is a electrician and you love doing that, or you're a guy that mows lawns, or you bake pies, or you personal train people, or you're a financial analyst, whatever it is, that one person shop, it's so much simpler to execute. And when you bring on employees one, two, and three, it it's not one plus one equals two, it's one plus one equals like 0.7, you go backwards. Mm-hmm. Because now not only can you not do what you were originally doing, you now have to do what you're originally doing and try to bring someone else up to speed without the right framework in place, which is what I try to lay out in the book. Um, it's a massive challenge. It's one that I learned the hard way. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but when I started Brute Strength, one of the first retreats that we did, I was giving the last talk and I had a panic attack in front of a room of 50 high paying people. And this was one of the, no, this is for sure the most embarrassing moment of my life. One of the more like traumatic I don't think many or any of the people that saw this happen thought about it after that day. Mm. I thought about it daily for years, almost daily for years. And it took me 
until about six months ago, where now I'm at the point where I'm a pretty good speaker. I'm not really good and I'm not great, but I'm pretty good to realize that 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 experience was a gift because the pain that I felt caused me to work my ass off. I spent tens of thousands of dollars doing like, you know, personal speaking courses or events. I spent dozens and dozens of hours trying to write better before presentations. And now I can see it as a gift. Do you think that your beginnings as a leader was any sort of advantage to you? I I believe that all struggles are a gift. So I think that it always, we are hardened through the struggle. We grow and we evolve because of the hardships. It's as a human being, our, I believe our purpose on life is to learn, grow, and evolve. From every experience that we're in, we should be gaining wisdom, becoming a more formidable human being, living with more peace, calm, harmony, love, whatever it is, just becoming a better versions of ourselves. So I believe that that was a, a boon, that was a benefit, that struggle. But equally, had I been set up for success, it would have been a boon and a... So to me, it doesn't matter. Every experience you have leads you down the right path if you have the right perspective. That's the difference to me. And the reason that you saw that for what it was was because you had the right perspective. You said like, this is a moment I am going to learn. I am going to grow. I don't want to go through that again. But with the wrong perspective, you, you shrivel up. You hide in a corner. You flee. You make sure that you're never put in that situation again. So it's the choice you make from the experiences, not the experiences themselves, in my opinion, that truly shape who we become. I saw a tweet or an Instagram thing that you reposted that was a, a drawing of basically the, the gist was becoming is greater than being. And so learning, growing, evolving, these are all about who we are becoming. Why is that more important in your opinion? So it goes back to, ha, ah, this is like the biggest full circle conversation ever, Mike. You and Adi recommended the book Mindset. Like, maybe seven years ago, eight wow. years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's that, right? And it's being is everything is pass fail. It is the, it is the fixed mindset. If, if it's all about who you are right now, you are going to do everything you can to just put yourself in situations that you're going to quote, pass the test and avoid at all costs any situations where you might fail the test. That's a really judgmental, negative, scared way to go through life. The opposite of that is to go, it's not about where I am right now. I need to gain as many experiences as I can. Win, lose, draw, fail, pass, doesn't matter. I'm going to learn from every experience that I have and put myself out there as much as I possibly can. And that's the growth mindset. <laughs> when you have that mindset, it's all about where you're going to be tomorrow, the next day, the next year. It's not about passing the test. We get so caught up. If I, if I had one wish for humanity, it would be to stop the mental judging that goes on in our own heads. And I think that I probably have that wish because it happens to me a lot. Like I judge myself a lot. It's probably one of the reasons that I've pushed to be where I am, but it's also the reason for a lot of my own internal struggles. 
And I realize now, being 45, how much that hampered and deterred a lot of my enjoyment that could have been a part of like your talk that you gave at that first presentation at that first um, retreat. The sole reason you froze was because in the middle of the talk you're judging yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, period. That's that's what it was about. You're going, are am I doing this well? Do they think I don't know what I'm doing? And all of a sudden the anxiety builds. And this is what leads to so much of the negative emotions that a lot of us carry around with us all the time. And we are nothing more. Your emotions dictate your life. Like full stop. If you are the most successful person in the world, but you have a lot of anger, you live an angry life. If you have nothing, nothing, but you're so full of, you're just laugh and full of happiness, you live a happy life. So it is this, it is these emotions that we carry around and most of the emotions are done, are a result of us judging things as good or bad in the moment. Mm-hmm. If we're constantly trying to pass tests, meaning it's all about who we are today, there, our lives are full of judgment, which is going to lead to anxiety, fear, doubts, negativity, or about the past, regrets, or anything else. If we could just eliminate this good or bad, eliminate the judgment mostly about ourselves. But yes, we judge others. We judge situations. We judge um, our path compared to other people's. If we let that fall to the wayside, gosh, this place would be, when I say this place, I mean this rock we're spinning around on would be an amazing, amazing place. Mm. It already is an amazing place. It's just that... Amazing. And most here. of us, me, most of us, me included, don't recognize it for what it is. Hmm. So I suppose that there are and have been examples of people that are just pristinely present and have zero, like they don't, the, the the thoughts of judgment don't even arise in their head. Um, what, I, yeah, one of my beliefs is that for most of us, ninety nine point nine 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 percent. Um, the best we can do is create a better relationship to those judgments, develop more awareness around our judgments. And one specific thing that's helped me in the past couple years is like how I relate to the judgy part of myself. So for instance, I had, um, I had an experience where it got really clear to me how competitive I am. And I would have thoughts in the middle of conversation with people sometimes that would say, I'm better than you. There's a part of me that's like, I'm better than you. And I didn't tell anyone about this man for years. And I finally shared it with someone. Long story short, I shared it with several people and they're like, oh yeah, me too. And a lot of times I'm not even aware of it. I'm just like kind of treating them like I'm better than them. And then I realized when in the past, when that would show up, I would say to myself, oh my God, you're such a piece of shit. You're a fraud. You're not this high integrity person you make yourself out to be. You're a, you're a piece of shit. And I was really aggressive with that part of myself. After I started sharing it, I started to hear like, I'm not the only one. The approach I took is, oh, hey, 
competitive part of myself. Thank you for helping me win the CrossFit games. Thank you for helping me succeed in business and all of these things you've helped me do. And I don't need you right now. I'm in a conversation with my friend, Ben. And it just like within weeks, it was gone. It was amazing how just that tender approach with that part of myself helped it just get, you know, it took the energy away from it. Yeah. I think, you know, when you say you shared that with other people and other people related, unless you are, as you said, point, part of the point zero 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 one, everyone's going to relate to that mm-hmm. because it's human nature. We all believe we are the star of the movie and everyone else is an extra. So of course the star feels like they are the best one, that they are better than all the other players in the movie. Or I love that they, go, they go the other way because not all movies have a hero. Some of them have a victim. Mm-hmm. And this is the way they place importance on themselves. We all believe that we are the center of this thing, this show that's this play that's happening. Everyone else is an extra to the point where even when we look up at the stars in the universe, we think we're looking at something out there. We're in that. We're in that crazy cosmos. We're in that crazy. We are just this. Uh, you can take this again. It's all about our perspective. We are just this incredibly insignificant piece of this whole entire thing. But that's not the way we, or I actually think most, and it's part of the survival, most animals operate. Because if we did, what would be the point of life? So you kind of have to go like, this is important. This matters. And once you do that, the ego pops up and there's all the 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 side effects of the ego right which is i need to i need to tell a story to make sure that this thing is important and it's i certainly can relate to it on a bunch of different levels and i think it's some a lot of times today today it's flip flop from this um you know, I'm the hero of the story to I'm the victim. It's probably gone back to three or four times today. And it's one of the things that I've tried to help people with a little bit is everyone talks about the importance of mindset. I know you talk about it. I know you as a elite athlete, it was important to you. But there's no framework whatsoever. Like if health is important to you, and performance. It's really easy to understand where you are on the hierarchy and what you need to do to climb the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Go run a mile, do a back squat, and how many pull-ups can you do? And you have a really good indicator of how fit you are. And if you can run a mile in 530, but you can only back squat 95 pounds, and you can do 29 pull-ups, okay, you have a really good roadmap of what you need to do to get our definition of well-rounded fitness. It's like you got two exceptional and one really weak ones, go get stronger. And then you just watch how that, how that progresses. But when that comes to what's going on between your ears, that's a whole lot harder to navigate because I don't know what you're saying 
in there. Mm. You don't know what I'm saying in here. So there's no way to compare. And we, we also don't know if it's getting better because we haven't created a path for ourselves. And the way I kind of lay this out and talk about this is the lowest level, level one, is the victim mentality. And the victim mentality, I was just getting my hair cut by somebody and you can see it. It looks really good, right? It's great. Wow. Yeah. Yep. So she was talking about how, um, how out of shape she is. And she just broke her toe going down the stairs. And when she said that, it wasn't like, you know, oops, broke my toe. It was like, of course I broke my toe. Of course that happened to me. Like, it's a victim mentality, right? Like, bad things are going to happen to me. I have no control whatsoever. I am um, just a pawn in this game and other people move the pieces and I have nothing to do about it. That to me is the lowest level of mindset that anyone could have. And it's the worst thing somebody could do to themselves. It's the, it's the root of all, I shouldn't say all, it's the root of most internal suffering. Hmm. The level above that, which isn't much better, but is the pessimist. And the pessimist just goes like, oh, this is going to suck. Or they, they, you just hear the language, it's really negative language. You know, stupid people in office don't know what they're doing. And, you know, like, uh, that I can't believe the the construction people would um, choose to do it at rush hour. Like, why are they doing it? It's just negativity, negativity, negativity. And we know as athletes that anyone with a negative mindset cannot perform to their peak. It's just without – you will be limited in your performance with a negative mindset. You can perform average, but you cannot go above average with a negative mindset. It's just part of the physiological loop of thought creates an emotion. Emotion creates a physiological response in the body. It either closes or it opens. That creates your performance in the long run. So if we want to be better dads, better business people, better athletes, better members of society, we can't have a negative mindset. So that leads us to the next one, which is an optimist. And the optimist believes the future is brighter than the past. The glass is half full. But there's two things about the optimist. I think most people put that as the top and you hear it all the time. It's like power of positive thinking. There's two things and I'd rather be an optimist than a, net, than a pessimist. But there's two things that the optimists need to be aware of. And the first one is they don't win in all situations. Many salespeople that are pessimists will outperform the optimists because the pessimist will look at all the ways it can go wrong and prepare for that. Whereas the optimists go like, we're going to make the sale. We're going to hit our quota. We're going to kill it. The competition is going to have nothing to do. And the pessimist looks at what's our competition going to do and prepares for that. And the second thing is it's a little bit situational dependent on who wins. In prisoners of war, the pessimists outperform, outlast, outlive the optimists. It's kind of called, it's called the Stockdale paradox, which is if you are an optimist, it's okay, we'll be out by Christmas. And Christmas comes and goes, it's okay, we'll be out by Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day comes and goes, goes all the way to next Christmas and they die of a broken heart. Mm-hmm. The pessimists go, we ain't never getting out of here. But that kind of hardens them, embraces them for the hardship. Wow. So the second thing that happens with the optimists is they lack the ability to brace. In athletics, this is what happens to the people that are ultimately too positive. We're going to go undefeated this season. And what happens to the locker room after they've lost the first two games of the season? Balloon pops. If you didn't, yeah, if you didn't brace for that, it, the foundation 
crumbles beneath them. It's a team that's down by 20 points at halftime. What we need to do is brace for hardships and recognize that there is no good or bad. That's what we started talking about at the beginning of the conversation. And climb from the victim, past the pessimist, past the optimist, to the realist. And the realist understands that life has good and bad things. The realist is ready to brace for hardships and they accept them as a part of life. The realist knows that there is no good or bad, but thinking, judging, makes it so, what Shakespeare said. The realist understands that even palm trees have to withstand tropical storms and even dolphins get sunburned. It's a natural part of life that you're going to have hardships. It's just the way it goes. But even that isn't the highest level. The highest level to me, and you'll appreciate this as being one, is the curious competitor. The highest level of mindset, the highest level of mental toughness, the highest level of the way we can navigate life is by being, and by the way, I'm, when you attach who you are, I am an optimist, not I think positively. When it's a verb, it's something you do. When it's a noun, it's who you are. When it's who you are, it's a part of your identity. If you say, I don't complain, that's something you don't do. But if you say, I am an optimist, now that's who you are, you own it more. We have so, we're so enthralled. We are so, it's a commitment bias. It's a, uh, the confirmation bias. We want to be right. So once we place a label on ourselves, our behaviors will form to match how we identify ourselves. And the way that we and see the, reality will also complete, morph to match it. Completely right. It is not the way you experience reality. It is the way, sorry, it is not reality. It is the way you experience it. Case in point, just to kind of drive that point home because it's so right, Mike, is um, the two of us are going for a walk in the woods hopefully soon on one of your awesome adventures. We come across this big, huge bee, like a massive bee, like an inch and a half long. I, maybe I am allergic to bees, or maybe I was stung by a bee last week. So I see that thing and I start to get really anxious. I feel something in my chest, my pupils dilate, my palms sweat, my heart races, and I get really nervous and anxious. That is a physiological response to seeing a bee. You grew up on a farm that raised honeybees. So to you, it brings a thing of nostalgia and amazing feelings of warmth and your childhood and being out in nature. And it's the, it's the thing that you connect with that makes you feel nothing but positivity and love and peace and balance and connection with everything. You understand how honeybees are the thing that connect all over the world. And your favorite movie is Jerry Seinfeld's The Bee Movie. So we both saw a bee. That's reality. We both experienced that reality completely differently. Now this goes to the point of the way we interact with our spouses. You know, a D asks you, asks you to do something simple. You know, Mike, can you bring the trash out? Can you do the dishes? Mike, can you come and help me with something? If you grew up with a controlling mother, you go, there she goes again, my freaking wife trying to control me, right? Yeah. It's your past conditioning 
that dictates the way we experience the world, not the world. And what we have to do, as you talked about earlier, is kind of like break down that veil and see things for what they actually are and not establish extra meaning on things that aren't really there. This is what the curious competitor can do above what the realist does. The realist goes like, there's good and bad, but they label it. Here's the good, here's the bad. The curious competitor sees it all as good. The curious competitor sees, experiences you fumbling and having that anxiety talk through that conversation that you had at that camp and goes, all right, yes, this is a chance for me to dot, dot, dot. They see every single, what other people call hardship as an opportunity. They see everything as a challenge, everything as a way to grow, evolve, learn, and become a more formidable being. It is not wanting your opponents to stumble, fall, or get knocked down or injured. It's wanting them to perform at their very best so that you can be your best. It is what the South Africans would call Ubuntu, which is the essence of humanity. I cannot be my best self, Mike, unless you are your best self. And when you bring everything you have to the table, that is going to elevate me and everyone else. That's what the real competitors want. It's n The real competitors, when Matt Fraser retired, had a sad day. They went, damn it. He elevated the sport. He made this thing better. I knew I was going to bring my best to try and beat him. The not curious, not true competitors go, all right, now it's my chance because they, want, they don't want to go up against the best. Now, that's kind of ridiculous because what you can do there is just get yourself into a smaller pond. Mm -hmm. If you beat a bunch of kindergartners a game of basketball, if you go, yeah, that's just your ego. It has nothing to do with actually you growing better, becoming better. There was no challenge there, totally in your comfort zone. What you want is to go up against people of your ability that might be just a tiny bit better. And that's what's going to bring out the very, very best in you. If you don't judge yourself for being a step behind each time. It's the judgment along the way, which now we've fallen back to the realist. Now, if you have that negativity loop, we're falling past through optimist and now we're in the pessimist. And we might even fall into the victim. And what happens is every single Moment to moment, we're flip-flopping. It's not like you rise up and now you live on level two of the apartment building. Now you live on level three. We're constantly flipping from victim to optimist to pessimist to realist. Hopefully, sometimes we can touch that curious competitor. That's what we are trying to do all the time is to try to just be aware of where we are. Because, you know, I have this conversation. The next thing people go is like, okay, that's great. How do we do it? How do we do that? And... The answer is it's honestly, it's just awareness. It is literally just becoming aware of where you are and the best place to become aware of it, thoughts are tough, is your words. Because your words are out, they're tangible and they're real. If you find yourself complaining, whining, making excuses, you're a victim or a pessimist. If you find yourself saying like, it's gonna be fine, it's okay, you're an optimist. If you find yourself just not judging things, kudos to you. You're uh, sorry if you like the, hey, this is a bad thing. Okay, no big deal. Good things, bad things, they're going to come. Realist. 
Now, if you find yourself getting excited about true hardships or challenges, that's amazing. So if you kind of run yourself through some scenarios, this is how it goes. Like run yourself through a few scenarios. You're a young dad. I, I can relate. You're having, you bring a, your newborn home and six months later, your newborn is still crying at 3 a.m. in the morning. What goes through your head when you wake up at three in the morning? Is it, why is this happening to me? Why does my baby cry? <laughs> kind of ridiculous. We actually say it out loud. Babies cry. So is it, oh, this sucks and you rip the covers off. Now you're a pessimist. Is it you lie in bed and you go, it's okay. My baby will stop crying in two minutes. Your baby doesn't stop crying in two minutes. You didn't brace for it. Now you're like really distraught. Or do you get out of bed and go, yeah, babies cry. Okay, let's go do this. That's the realist. Or do you go, this is what we should be spying for. And I'm not saying I'm there, but this is what we should be spying for. When that happens, how quickly because it might not happen right away, but with awareness, you can start to filter your responses to situations and go, okay, can I, curious, can I, ask yourself a question, can I be present right now? Can I have patience? Can I connect with my child at 3 a.m.? Can I do what I need to do to not be frustrated and actually use this as a moment to focus on my character. Because there's an inverse relationship between the competitor and the pessimist. I'm sorry, and the victim. One is only focused on what's going on inside of them. The curious competitor is only interested in their character. They are only interested in how they respond to situations. The victim is the opposite. The victim has no interest or awareness whatsoever of what's inside. Their entire world is dictated by what's going on outside. What we have to do is start to recognize it's not about the circumstances, the situations, or our perceived realities. It's all about how we are responding internally to those situations, realities, and situations. Beautifully said, ma'am. It's fascinating to me how as one rises up different levels of excellence and many different aspects of our the world around us, it moves closer towards like spiritual enlightenment or spiritual philosophy. What came up for me when you were sharing that is something that Michael Singer, the untethered soul surrender experiment author says, he teaches about how the moment in front of us, right? For you and I, it's being across zoom right now. It's taken 13 and a half billion years for this moment to happen to us. And so for us to argue with that and feel like it's wrong, right? I, I, should, I shouldn't have gotten second place. I should have gotten first place. I shouldn't be 15 pounds overweight. I should have a freaking six pack like Brooke Entz. For us to argue with that is just so silly. So many billions, trillions of things and little actions had to be perfect so that we could have this moment that we have right now. And I almost never remember that. 
but when I, when I do, when I do, it transforms a, you know, quote unquote, challenging experience to something that I look at as a reality, but also just an opportunity for spiritual growth. Love that. That brings a level of awareness and perspective to the moment, which I think are like two of the biggest things that anybody could have at any given time. And usually when we find ourselves anxious, we find ourselves worried, stressed, um, angry, we're losing one of those two things. And if we can bring that level of perspective, you know, another way of saying that, you know, 13.5 billion, is that what you said? Billion yep. years? Million? Billion. B or M? B as in boy. Bravo. Yeah, that takes a, that's a Billy. long time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Bravo. Uh, <laughs> there's 7.2 billion people on planet Earth. And for us to expect for all of them to act, think, and behave in accordance with the way that we want them to is crazy. It just it's, it makes no sense. But yet when people say things that we don't want them to say, act in ways that we don't want them to act, or you know, exude uh, behaviors that we don't like, we get all up in arms and we get all frustrated that this isn't, you know, it goes back to the that happiness equation, which is happiness is, you know, expectations minus reality. We have these expectations. We want life to line up exactly like we want. Life and the universe is not, has no concern for what you want. It's just going to unfold and the reality is the way it is. The world is going to turn. The seasons are going to go. It's going to rain. There's going to be storms. People are going to talk. People are going to fight. People are going to say things that you don't agree with. And the best thing that we can do is start to get ourselves out of that victim mindset. Don't focus on the externals and focus on us internally. There's so much work to be done inside before we go outside. If you don't like what people are saying, check in. And I'm not, I'm not preaching and telling what other people to do. I'm saying what I, I'm working on. Don't worry so much about what they're saying, worry about why that is offending you. you, know, do you is, there, is there really a problem or is the problem that you have a problem with the problem? I love it. You open one of the chapters with a quote from Alexander Hamilton. It goes, those who stand for nothing fall for everything. This hit me like a ton of bricks. Why did you include this quote and what does it mean to you? I believe that we all deserve to live a life of purpose, passion, health, and fulfillment. I think that's our greatest aspiration, and we all search for it in different ways. Some people try to excel in business. Other people try to excel in relationships. Other people um, in sports, arts, entertainment, whatever it might be. I think it's really important for us to figure out what it is that we want in our lives, being very intentional. And the way to start with that is with your values. And values is like, usually when I hear values now, I, I have this like kind of like subconscious eye roll because it's such like a, just a buzzword, and, you know, put it on your coffee mug, put it on a poster, put it on a wall. But it's because people haven't operationalized their values. But you still have to start there. And values, 
it's not buzzwords. It's not, okay, values, honesty, integrity, um, compassion. It's what values are, or think about that word. It's what do you value? It's what do you think is important in life or in business or in a team or whatever. But what's important? And then from there, you have to figure out, once you figure out what those are, you figured out what it is that you want to stand for. You need to stand for something. And whether that is being a protector and freedom, and you, then that leads, it dictates the way you shape your life. So those people end up joining the military, whether it's um, joy and laughter, those people become performers or you know, art, whatever it is. If it's for me, one of mine is health and fulfillment. It's, I, that's one of the things I value in life. And I've, once you do that, you can set up your operations, your, your, your daily tasks to make sure you're going in that direction. And then it's a litmus test. It's a way to make decisions. Is this in line with my values or not? These people that I want to have close to me, are they in line with my values or not? Is this um, selling my business? Is this in line with my values or not? You know, um, Going home early from work, you know, for your kid's soccer game. If you know what your values are ahead of time, it's much easier to make decisions in the heat of the moment. If you don't have those, you're a leaf blowing in the wind. You stand for nothing. But it's really easy. I shouldn't say, well, that's not the right word. It's much simpler to navigate life if you know what it is you stand for. To be really clear about what matters to you and also aware of whether or not your behavior is matching what you say matters to you. So, so that's the second part of it, right? So there's uh, awareness. That's the awareness is what is important to me, awareness. Then the next one is intention. I'm going to intentionally set up my day, my week. I'm going to set up the goals. I'm going to set up the path. I'm going to set up my calendar. I'm going to set up the way I live my life in line, in accordance with those values. And then the third step in the, in the sequence is action. And then you actually have to do it. You actually have to, because all the intention in the world is just a dream, but action without intention is a nightmare. That is a definition of hell is working your ass off for something that ultimately doesn't matter. That's why I give you so much credit for the conversation we were having earlier about you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I have some space right now in my life and I'm going to use that space, you didn't say this, but fill in the blank the word, intentionally to connect with my family. There's so much going on in that statement from awareness, what's important to me, intention, I'm not going to take the next job, the next opportunity, the next dot, 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 dot. I, and then I'm going to actually do it and do it and not just think about it and then actually be hypocritical at worst, but maybe just, you know, um, loose at best, but be very disciplined with the way that I actually spend my time. Awareness, intention, action are three guiding principles that will leave, lead you pretty much in any endeavor you do with greater levels of success than just getting pushed by 
the forces of nature or society. We don't give ourselves, I think that we often give ourselves too much credit for having control over things we don't have control over, but at the same time, don't give ourselves enough credit for having control over a lot of things that we actually do have control over. If you tear your ACL, you have no control over that anymore. Yet we ruminate and we bust ourselves up for these decisions or what we might have done or things that we feel the victim. And you got to let that go. You have no control over it. If you're not happy with your job, you have control over that. You can change your job. If you don't like where you live, you can move. You are not a tree. You have control over that. So to me, it's those, and you're doing this, Mike, like for sure with what you're doing in your life right now. I, I you know, I really respect the way you, Thank you man. navigate life because um, you have a lot of awareness. You're doing it intentionally. Um, actually, you're bringing a lot of intention to the way and you're actually taking massive action towards those intentions. Thank you so much for that, brother. Right back at you, man. Right back at you. I have a working hypothesis that goes something like people tend to do a lot of different things as a symptom of a lack of self-worth, a lack of clarity, or a lack of courage if they have the clarity. And one of the things that I've always admired about you is that you seem to keep things simple and focused. So you have always only had a few athletes at a time when other people, including myself and Brute, like we would have a just a bunch of different athletes we were coaching at once. Um, you, for so long, you would only focus, you, it seemed like you only focused on Instagram versus putting a podcast out or YouTube channel or a blog, just very hyper-focused. Do you think my assessment is correct that you are clear about what matters and you have the courage to actually keep it simple? Um, yes, that, uh, so the simplicity one is one of my like life values, seek simplicity. I think in the marketplace, simplicity wins. Um, the market doesn't. The market will crave simplicity without subconsciously. Yeah. They want it. We live in a very noisy world. We don't have a lot of chances to get our messages across. So simplicity will win. In life, I believe simplicity is a huge asset to anyone, and it's something I try to do as intentionally as possible. And yes, your your assessments right. I. I've only ever worked with two guys and two girls at a time. That's the way I th give a guy to buddy up with and compete with, give a girl somebody to buddy up with and compete with. And uh, in terms of the only Instagram, I, I didn't even think of that until you said it, but it's probably just my, I don't, I don't like technology. I don't like social media. So it's the platform that I've gravitated towards and I've never done anything else really. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of simplicity and I think that that clarity that you spoke of is a, of massive importance. We only have so many matchsticks to burn in a given day. And if we're burning up those matchsticks on things that ultimately don't matter, you know, I've come to, I've come to hate like putting gas in my car because I feel like it's such a waste of time. Like I want to be doing something instead of that. And I want to be as, and a lot of this I inherited from my wife, Heather, who is so uh, maniacally focused on making moments matter. 
Like everything is done with intention. You know, if um, like last night, our 18 year old son was at the house and he was not at the dinner table for maybe like two minutes. And she was like, Jonah. He's like, what? She's like, where are you? Like she wants to be spending time like that, like that much. Where are you? And he's like, I'm pooping. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do it in here. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was like, but it's everything. Everything is, and it's, I, I like that. I would much rather that than the alternative, which is like, no moments matter, just whatever. It's all like, but people say that time is the most valuable because it's the only non-renewable resource. You know, you spend money, you get money, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. But I don't think it's time that's the most valuable because you can give time and not have it be meaningful. It's focus that's the thing. Attention. And where where you it's your attention. Cuz I can be with my wife out to dinner, that's time. But if my focus is on checking my email, that's it's not the time that matters, it's the attention. Attention and focus is the most important thing we have in our lives. I believe that's why values matter so much and create the the direction of where you want to go. And if we operate with ultimate simplicity, I, I, I think that people underestimate the power of simplicity and um, have a fa- there's a failure to recognize how complexity leads to exhaustion and unproductivity. And whether it's a matter of, you know, the, the thing that everyone's getting attention now is like the multitasking, but it's just, you know, from the dings and the buzzers and the beeps and the tweets and the, the, the distraction that's ab- abound everywhere. I think it's really cool to focus on a few core things and go a mile deep in them. So same guy I referenced in the beginning of our show, Philip McKernan, very like a master coach, life, life coach type guy. He says that of all the people he's worked with, the only thing that they all have in common, it is a desire for radical simplicity. They want to radically simplify their lives. That above anything he's ever taught me just was like burned into my head. And as I look around my life, the people that are happiest have simple lives, at least relative to, um, you know, those around them and going back to, that's gonna be burned into mind now. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So going back to the clarity and courage piece earlier, you mentioned that your whole life, you have had a You've, you've cared a lot about what other people think and how other people feel about you. One of my judgments is that a lot of people, like they start a bunch of businesses and they do all of the streams of content and just do, do, do because they feel like that makes them more valuable to other people, makes them seem cooler, more successful, et cetera. Help me see the, the, like how we marry these two, you have a deep desire to be liked and accepted, but you're willing to keep things simple, potentially risking 
people not thinking you're as doing as, as, as much as you should be. Yeah, this is something uh, I struggled with for a very long time is this desire to be liked. And the way I've sort of navigated internally, first off, it's an inborn, it's part of our, wanting to be liked is born into us. It's part of our survival mechanisms. Just like being chased by the saber-toothed tiger, our, our evolutionary biology has been set up so that we flip over from the parasympathetic to the sympathetic nervous system. So we go from the rest and digest to fight and flight. All of the blood goes to our working muscles. Things leave our guts. We, our, our heart race, we're prepared so we can get everything we want and run away from the saber-toothed tiger. That's built into us. Thank God we have that really efficient system. But as social beings, we also might not only die from being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, but back in the day from being ostracized from the tribe. If we weren't seen as valuable or liked by the tribe, we, there was a threat that we would be kicked out. If that's the case, back in the day, we had no chance of survival whatsoever. So this inherent, I need to be liked, I need to show my worth, I need to show my value, is built into us. It's, it's not unique to any one of us whatsoever. It's part of our evolutionary biology. But what we have to recognize is that's no longer serving us. If, we, if some people don't like us now, we don't get kicked out of the tribe. In fact, us being unique and different might make us more valuable to the tribe, but just not, we're not hardwired that way. And what's helped me navigate it is the understanding that it is important for me to be liked by the people close to me. Mm-hmm. That's what matters. I, if, if my son, if the people I hang with every day, if my daughters, if my wife, if my parents, if my brother, if they think I'm being a jerk, that's a big mirror for me. That matters. But if someone comments something on Instagram, that shouldn't matter whatsoever because they're outside of my tribe. And it's a level of simplicity. Again, it's a filter system of knowing truly what is hardwired in you to react a certain way versus what is truly serving us now and what really is important. And getting everyone to like us doesn't matter at all. And when people do sound off, it's a reflection of more about what they, you know, this is like such like self-help 101 type stuff. It's a reflection of what they're going through. For someone to Say, you know, like, um, uh, Mike, Mike's no longer doing WAG. Mike's no longer, you know, an elite athlete. Mike's no longer coaching. Uh, he's fallen off. Like, they have no idea what your values are, what your direction of your life is, or the way your life is operating right now. Your levels of happiness or pleasure and um, peace and pursuits they're judging it off of their own 
judgments, which they say, if you're not an elite athlete anymore, if you're not in the game anymore, man, you've lost a step. You couldn't hang. You couldn't do it. And that's not the case. We can only, first off, we shouldn't judge at all because there is no good or bad. Thinking makes it so. But if the idea is keep the people that matter to you, their opinions are the ones that do matter because that is part of our roles in life, you know, as a, as a member of a societal tribal animal species. Mm -hmm. The people that we actually have, um, relationships with agreements with commits commitments with not our followers. Right. Yes. So, I had a ton of other stuff planned, but we, we've just been rambling, which I love. Um, I would love to stop on or, or just wrap up on trust a little bit. You say that when teams don't trust each other, every single interaction is taxed. When they trust each other, every interaction, and I added this because I couldn't remember exactly how you ended it, but it, there, there's a deposit made in the bank of trust. And one of the best examples I've ever seen of, of how to do this as a leader is your story of Harry giving you feedback for you not working out at the gym as often as you're asking your coaches to do. Um, and then you go on to share how he gave you feedback with the rest of your team. So could you just break down a little bit how you made it safe enough for him to give you, his boss, critical feedback, and then why it was important for you to to share the exact story with the rest of your team. Yeah, so I think trust is, first off, trust is none of those eye roll type words, right? It's just one of those like, oh God, here we go, talking about trust again. It's, I think it's because, again, there's not a, really a framework for it. So people just go, okay, it's this loose thing and everyone understands everyone works towards it and everyone believes that they are a trustworthy person. But I think that trust comes through a few different things. It's, it's care. You, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So you have to show that you truly care about them. Then it's consistency. You can't just do it once and then not do it the next time. You have to, you have to show up and be there every day. And the last one is one I think most people lead to, which is competence. You have to be, you have to know what you're talking about. Without that, um, you don't have full ultimate trust. And this is what leaders, I think, need to do really well is, you know, reward when people are doing something hard that is going to create trust. So the example you're giving is, you know, I, I was talking to my team, the other coaches that work at the gym saying how important it is that people work out in the classes. And it's one of our things that we think is really important. Um, and Harry came up to me, w- one of my coaches and said, I don't think, you know, you're following through with this principle that you've laid out for us. And w- when that happens, we have to distrust our natural gut reaction, which is again built into us to defend ourselves. You're being attacked. And when you're being attacked, someone's calling you out verbally, 
pointing out a weakness. There's a vulnerability there. You can be wounded. And instead of defending, protecting that weak spot, we do the opposite and see this as an opportunity for trust building and lean into it and not only be vulnerable, but double and triple down on it to show how this is the way that you want communication operations to flow. So when he called me out on that, first off was a big thank you. That was the first, like, thank you for bringing this up. And then in the next coaches meeting, brought it to light, not to say, you know, and now I'm not, I'm not the hero of the story. And now I'm going to start taking classes. I, I brought it up in a way that I was so proud that Harry entered the danger and how awesome it was that he was brave enough to have that conversation. And if we want to have a team founded on trust, we have to be able to call people out. We have to be able to enter the danger. We have to be able to talk about the elephants in the room. We have to be able to um, pull at people and uphold standards when they're not being met. And just double and triple layer down on that aspect of it. And it made it all about Harry and how great Harry was that he was brave enough to do that. That's great, man. You talk about Ray Dalio's book and his idea of radical transparency in his company and how they were just constantly being mirrors for each other and helping each other improve through critical feedback. Um, Yeah, I just want to acknowledge you for creating that type of environment. It's so hard to do. And I think the story that I just told about how you do it is the absolute best way one could. Yeah, Ray Dalio's, uh, his, I know some people that worked at Bridgewater and it's, it's, it's rad. Like we have transparency and we try to work on it well, uh, but his is like radical transparency. <laughs> and because of that, there's crazy turnover. You know, the people that last, he gets what he wants out of it, but it's incredibly uncomfortable for a lot of people um, and they wash out really quickly. Amazing, for better man. or for worse. Not saying either which way is better or worse. It's, um, but as you said, you know, he knows what he stands for. And because he knows what he stands for, his values, they become the number one hedge fund in the world. So it's, it's not by mistake. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening.